Thank you so much, Art. Evening, everyone. It's fantastic to be with you and uh, so look forward to getting to know you this week. Um, a couple of comments of, of introduction. Um, firstly, just my, my wife, my two sons, um, Miles and Levi. And uh, we have a daughter, Sophie, who's uh, in London, serving as an intern in a church uh, there at the moment. And then our oldest son, Asher, who's 23, and he's, uh, he's in Brea, where we are. He's just finished a master's degree uh, at Kent State University, and uh, he amazingly got a, a scholarship to play football, uh, not the soccer football, American football. And um, so that's kind of paid his way, which has been amazing. I, I turned, uh, turned 50 two weeks ago. And um, this is your cue to say, you don't look 50. You don't look a day over 65. Um, Ronell and I have been married for 28 years. Got that right, love? And um, being kind of North, Northern California in the Redwood Forest is just... Um, very meaningful for me. Uh, I was actually part of Youth for Christ my first year out of school. I was telling uh, Art, and um, we, we were from South Africa, and uh, in 1990, took a trip to California with the first multicultural team from South Africa. As many of you will know, South Africa was caught in the dark days of apartheid. And uh, so we just came to talk about the gospel of reconciliation. And uh, on a trip here, I went for a walk in Muir Woods. And I'm not sure what happened, but I sensed the Lord call me. Um, and whenever these things happen, you know, your kids go, was it an audible voice? No, it wasn't. But it just, I came back with a deep, deep conviction that the Lord wanted me to uh, live and preach the gospel in California. And so as an 18-year-old went back to Renal, we were just courting, and I said, if we get married, we're going to live in California one day. And, you know, as South Africans, you don't travel much, and she was just like, I don't even have a passport. How's that going to happen? But uh, by God's kindness, 18 years later, we moved. And so we have been uh, a part of a church called Southlands since 2007. Um, we joined the pastoral team uh, for three years, and then... Uh, I took the lead of the church in 2010, so we've been there ever since. And uh, Southlands, some of you said, I haven't heard of Southlands, what kind of church is it, etc. We call ourselves a gospel-centered, spirit-empowered community on mission. Uh, some people call us kind of Bapticostal. <laughs> we, uh, we love the Word of God, we take the Word of God seriously, we love the gospel but we don't believe that we're called to choose between loving the gospel and being filled with the Spirit. And, um, and we're not trying to be a mega church. We, we have grown quite a bit, but we call ourselves a medium-sized multiplying church. And so we have, in the last 10 years, multiplied five times, uh, from Brea into Fullerton, and then into Whittier, and then into Chino, and then into Thailand, and then into Santa Ana. And so God has been very kind to us and just growing us and multiplying us. And I suppose when we gather those congregations together, we would be large, but we're not trying to be large. We're just trying to be healthy. 
and we believe that healthy churches multiply. So um, that's a little bit about our story, and it's just such a delight to, to be able to teach the Word of God. Normally in our services, I'll teach for 35 minutes to 40. So I said to Art, man, it's great to have 55 minutes to preach. He said, well, not all preachers preach 55 minutes. Um, I'll probably go about 45 and 40 to 45 and then just open for Q&A. And we've got obviously plenty of time this coming week. I am not an academic, although I did slog my way through a master's for nine years, slow learner. And uh, so I do take theology very seriously, but I'm a pastor, I'm a practitioner, and so as we dig into this amazing, amazing rich book called Hebrews, um, I, I hope that it is going to both comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. That's what a pastor wants to do. Uh, a pastor is not just interested in good knowledge, although we want good knowledge. We're trusting that through the Word of God, Jesus deeply comforts you in your affliction but also provokes you if you're comfortable. And all of us have both. Amen? And, uh, and so we are tonight just going to take the first three verses, and it's going to be introductory. Um, I'm going to spend quite a bit of time just going into uh, some of the major themes, a bit of the background, and, um, and then we, we're going to take four other high points in the book of Hebrews in uh, the remaining nights, God willing. And one of the things that happens as you get older is uh, you tell dad jokes. It's just an amazing thing how the older I get, the more glee I get from having my kids wince and squirm and go, oh, dad, as I tell dad jokes. Any dads feel me out there? That's right. And one of the sure signs that you are winning as a dad is when your son sends you a dad joke sitting in church this morning. I was like, man, I am winning. My oldest son, he texts me, because we're finishing off a series in the book of Hebrews back home, and he said, Dad, um, how does Jesus make coffee? And I was like, I feel a dad joke coming on, Asher. He's like, he brews it. <laughs> Very old, but my 23-year-old son thought that it was well worth the effort. Let's read it together. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. So God is not silent. Uh, he has spoken. He's spoken through creation. He has spoken through his prophets. He has spoken through his law. 
but he has spoken ultimately through his son, his son, Jesus Christ. And this is the message of Hebrews. This is the primary message. And it's a call to allow Jesus, the exact representation of God, his truth and his beauty, to sink deeper into our souls. My, my hope after this next four days is that each of us love Jesus more, feel like we know him more, can trust him more, and obey him more. We, we're not told exactly who wrote Hebrews. Each of us have theories, I'm sure. Some would say the Apostle Paul, although it doesn't seem to suit his style. Uh, some would say James. Uh, others say Apollos. But, but certainly, it would seem that it was written to a Jewish audience. Um, it was assumed that the Old Testament uh, scriptures were, were known, so not written to a Gentile uh, audience. And it would seem that this community, this Jewish community that had obviously come to Christ, was known to the writer because he calls them dear brothers and sisters. And it would seem that this community was under pressure, under persecution, and was starting to drift away. And Hebrews 1 and 2 talks about, uses this, uh, this analogy of people drifting away. And that's why Jesus is spoken of as the anchor for our souls. These people, under pressure, under persecution, were drifting away. What were they drifting towards? It would seem like they were drifting back towards Judaism. And if you do uh, your, your homework around this time, because likely it was written before A.D. 70, uh, when the temple was destroyed, because the temple is written about as something that is fully functioning, sacrifices, high priests, and so, so, so seemingly it was written before A.D. 70. And around this time, uh, the Roman emperor actually gave uh, civil protection to Judaism as a faith, but had not yet given any civil protection to Christians. And so there was a temptation for these people that had come to put their faith in Christ as the fulfillment of Jewish faith to say, let's take off uniform and mingle with crowd. Let's just hide back under Moses, back under the prophets, back under the law. Jesus and our association with him is too much. They hadn't yet deconverted. They hadn't yet deconstructed, but they were drifting away. For many people, and even preaching this book, I've so loved preaching this book. We've been in it for about six months, and we've still got a few months left as a church. Um, it's actually difficult to preach because you can't say Paul or the Apostle John or the Apostle Peter, you're always saying the writer to Hebrews. <laughs> it just doesn't roll off the tongue at all. But for many people, even hearing it preached, it's confusing because, well, you know, if we don't know the author, we don't know the audience, what, what does it mean? But I think the writer to the audience would want every hearer to be able to look back to the Old Testament as the promises of God and look forward to Christ as the fulfillment of all that was promised. 
And if we read Hebrews through that lens, we can relax in the mystery of who wrote it and to whom it was written and just say, actually, this author is wanting all of us to discover the richness of all the clues and the shadows of prophets and law in the Old Testament and see Christ as the fulfillment of all of that. Let me just press pause and ask, how are you and I in danger of drifting away? How are you and I today in danger of drifting away? Uh, Of course, the obvious deconstruction that we see taking place in the church in the West is a danger, caught in the riptides of popular culture. And, And Hebrews is such a wonderful safeguard against that because it shows Jesus as Scripture describes Him. And as we read... Jesus through the lens of Scripture, we are safeguarding, we're safeguarded from making a Jesus in our own image. It's so easy to kind of shrink wrap and vacuum pack Jesus to be less challenging and less confrontational to us in our culture. And so deconstruction is happening all the time because there's some aspects of Jesus' teaching and character that today in our culture that we just find offensive. But actually, Hebrews describes Jesus as he truly is, and so it's a safeguard against deconstruction. It's also a safeguard against those of us who've been in the faith for a long time and have become dull of hearing. One of the themes in Hebrews is this idea of the words of God being spoken, but the hearers being dull. It's almost like when you take your phone and you silence notifications on your text thread. Don't you hate it when you're trying to text someone and it just says their notifications are silenced. But then you have this little thing where you can press, well, send it to them anyway. And then it goes boing all big. I love doing that to my wife. Just like send it to her anyway. Hebrews in many ways is God saying, you have silenced my notifications You've turned down the volume on my voice, and I am now amplifying my voice through Jesus. Today, that's what it says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. It's a call to soft-hearted, open ears. And then I, I would say that the final way that we can drift away, we can deconstruct, we can turn down the volume of God's voice, but thirdly, I think if we're not careful, in our day and age, we can start to use Jesus as a means to our end. What do I mean? We can start to say, well, Jesus, I believe you're true, and I've got this vision for my life. It's a life of morality, or maybe it's a life of prosperity, or perhaps it's a life of ministry effectiveness, or perhaps it's the hopes that all my, 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 my children serve you, etc. And we start to use Jesus instead of treasure Him. We start to network Him. Hebrews is a wonderful safeguard against Jesus becoming a means to our end. You will find me quite often quoting C.S. Lewis, Uh, We love C.S. Lewis's writings. We called our oldest son, our first son, Asher Lewis Frau, because of that. And one of my favorite pieces of writing by C.S. Lewis is the Screwtape Letters, which I quoted this morning. 
And in the screw, screw tape letters, it's this uncle demon to a uh, junior demon, and they are trying to trap a Christian. So it's kind of turning the truth on its head, getting a glimpse into Satan's strategies to trap us. And one of the things Screwtape says is, is the see to it that Christianity is always for them, Christians, a means to an end. Always Christianity plus something. Christianity plus social justice. Christianity plus patriotism. Never mere Christianity. What the end is does not matter as long as Christianity is the means and not the end in and of itself. It's so easy in each of our lives to make it Jesus plus something. And Hebrews, our hope, causes us to say, Lord, I do have these hopes for my life. That's okay. But actually, I'm not using you. I am treasuring you. So, Father, as we dig back into your word, help us to treasure Jesus. Help us to see him as the fulfillment of all that is promised. God is not silent. He has willfully disclosed himself through the prophets, but finally and fully, it says, through his son. He, he's saying, this is me. This is what I am like. This is what makes me glad, and this is what makes me sad and even mad. This is how I love. This is how I'm going to work this whole thing out. God, in Hebrews, does not leave us to guess in the dark about what his son is like. So what is he like? Well, verse 1 says, he is the substance of God's glorious nature. Let's read it again. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So Jesus is greater than the prophets. He's the fulfillment of the prophets. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is, the verse 3, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. What does that mean? The radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature. Well, whereas the, the prophets gave glimpses and and shadows, and types, and metaphors. It says, in many ways, and at many different times. Jesus actually brought them all together into one fully orbed, glorious picture in the flesh. As it says in John 1 verse 1, the world, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only. That word glory is the word Shekinah, which, which means the shining, visible glory that demonstrates the majesty of God. And we know that the Old Testament prophets, because he's spoken through his prophets, but the prophets gave, gave glimpses and, and shadows and, and types. The Old Testament prophets had glimpses of the glory of God. But Jesus is the full radiance of his glory. Think about Moses in Exodus 33. We often think of Moses as the bringer of the law, but Hebrews actually refers to him as a prophet too. And so we know Moses says, show me your glory in Exodus 33. And God says, you cannot see my face and live, but I will hide you in the cleft of the rock. And as he passes before him, 
He declares his glory, the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate one, slow to anger and abiding in love, abounding in love. And Moses, after glimpsing the glory of God, being hidden in the cleft of the rock, he, he, he comes down and he has to put a veil over his face. The Israelites are so fearful of the glory of God. And in fact, after that, they just say, Moses, you talk to God. You talk to God. And so you see these prophets have a glimpse of the glory of God, but they cannot see God's full glory and live. There's something of a clue. One of our family traditions is to have treasure hunts at both Christmas and Easter. And I write these clues. I'm so proud of my clues. They rhyme. They're little poems. They're, I mean, my kids cringe, but I just think these things are absolute art. And I send them all over the neighborhood. And at the end, at Easter is the big Easter basket. And at Christmas is their Christmas stockings. The clues, imagine, I mean, I want my kids to just love these clues. I want them to frame them. But imagine if there was no gift at the end. The, the clues are the shadow. The Easter basket is the substance. And that's what the writer of the Hebrews is saying. All of these prophets, they, they like the clues. But Jesus is the full substance of the glory of God. And if you think of Jesus' life, Jesus' life was full of glory. Even in his birth. Glory shone around. But the difference between the glory of God in Jesus and the glory of God that the Old Testament prophets glimpsed was that his glory was accessible. It was accessible to dirty shepherds at the bottom of the food chain. Pagan stargazers. They came and bowed down and worshipped. Moses, this righteous lawgiver, couldn't fully look on God's glory. And yet in Jesus, the full radiance of the glory of God, and yet everyone could access him. You see how he's, he's better than the prophets. As glorious as God, the exact radiance of his glory, and yet accessible. You think of the amazing transfiguration where Peter, James, and John go up on the mountain with him. And Elijah and Moses are talking and Jesus' face is radiant with glory. And Peter, you know, Peter, he's always living with his foot in his mouth. He's just saying, let's build a shelter. Let's just stay up here. Compare that to the Israelites. And we know Peter was not sinless. We know he had big flaws and faults. And yet he understood that this perfect, holy glory of God was accessible. We've seen glory of God in the face of Christ. So Christ is the glory of God made accessible. And then it goes on to say, He is the exact imprint of His nature. In other words, the, the Old Testament prophets gave little glimpses, but, but Jesus was the exact imprint. They saw almost like certain little pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, but Jesus was the whole jigsaw, the full picture. He bears exact resemblance to the Father, 
Now, we, we shouldn't take that too far in the sense that God the Son is not God the Father, and God the Father is not God the Son. But the Nicene Creed says about this that He is of one substance with the Father. He's the exact imprint. And that means the Son is more than just a family resemblance. He's more than just a chip off the old block. With, with my kids, with our kids, I see some family resemblance in each of them that bears resemblance to me. The best parts bear resemblance to their mom. But in each of my kids, I, I get little glimpses. I don't get the whole picture. My oldest has my largeness and my loudness and my work ethic. My daughter has my love of adventure and music. Youngest has my strong feelings about food. He's, he's affectionate. But they, they're just bits of me. But, but Jesus wasn't just bearing family resemblance to the Father. He was the exact representation of him. In, in other words, when, when the disciples said, Lord, show us the Father. And he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Do you want to know what the invisible God is like? Look at me. I'm God with skin on. God the Son. The exact imprint. What's interesting about this phrase, the exact imprint, is that in these days, the, the emperor would have a royal engraver. And they would have stamping machines that would make an exact imprint of how the emperor wanted to appear to his subjects. And so what happened before was that artists would make different sketches of the emperor. And you know, I mean, if you go to some of these art galleries and you find artists' impressions of kings, ancient kings, quite often they're not very flattering. They're kind of caricatures. They'll draw the king with a big nose or big ears or a big stomach. And so the emperor would have a royal engraver. And the emperor would say, this is the picture of me that I think is the right representation. And then he would have a royal stamp on a coin. And he would say, throw away all these sketchy caricatures of me and show the people the right imprint of me. The writer of the Hebrews is using that coin term that actually God the Father is saying, all of my creation is just making these sketchy caricatures of me, and it's not actually me. I'm going to send my son as an exact representation of my character and my glory. Do you want to know what God is like? Look at the son. What's the takeaway of this first big idea, that he is the substance of the glory of God? Well, I would say, first up, it's relief that we can see and know the glory of God and not die. Isn't it wonderful that we, like Moses, are hidden in the cleft of the rock, but it's not a physical rock. It's hidden in the cleft of Jesus' wounds, the rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee, as that old hymn goes. We can hide in Christ and see the glory of God and live. 
Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it wonderful that we don't only trust in God, we can see God. So there's relief in that. But I think that there's also some reverence that we have to think about. Because if we don't see Christ as the Scripture describes Him, we do make a reduced image of Jesus. There are some aspects of Jesus, I don't know about you, but that I find really offensive. That Jesus says, I'm not inclusive, I am exclusive. I am the only way to the Father. That is quite offensive. It's certainly offensive to our culture. And you and I have a decision. Either we receive that or otherwise we reject it. Some of Jesus' teaching on money and generosity. Some of Jesus' teaching on enemy love. It's highly offensive. But actually, as we receive Jesus, as the Bible describes him, he makes his imprint on our lives. And we are made into his image rather than making him in our image. That's the beauty of Jesus. Now let's go to the next verse. That he is the sustainer, verse 3, of all he created. I love this piece. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We're going to sit on that for a while. You're doing all right? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. The writer of the Hebrews is now introducing a major theme that carries on through the whole book, and that is the theme of perseverance. Uh, that's what Arthur read, let us run with perseverance, the race set before us. And we know that the audience, the original audience, was drifting. They were running out of gas. They were redlining on reserve. They were wanting to give up. And so this was written to them to remind them that he who began a good work in you, the one that called you, the one that redeemed you, the one that you put your faith in, he who began a good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it. And I want to just say to you, this is where we just sit and we breathe in the encouragement of Hebrews. How many of us feel like, oh, I'm running out of gas. My son and I went to the gym last night, and I'm normally pretty good on the rowing machine, but at altitude, my gosh, I felt really pathetic. And sometimes in our culture, particularly in California, it just feels like we're running at altitude, doesn't it? It feels like we're running out of breath. It feels like, oh man, I feel like the culture's closing in on me. And it's such a temptation to just want to pack up and go to an easier state, a more moral state, a cheaper state, whatever it is. But actually this calls these people and us to trust that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. He who created and he who saved will sustain. He's the sustainer of all he created. Verse 1 says, He's the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I love the fact that this letter begins with the two words, long ago, long ago. And it's actually taking us back to Genesis. In other words, God the Son did not begin in Bethlehem. But as we know, in the beginning, 
was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's nothing, First John, that was created that was not created by Him, Jesus, the Word. He was there at creation. And so he's putting the span of God's story, not just beginning at Bethlehem, but beginning in Genesis and ending in Revelation, and saying, this Jesus that you came to believe in, it's not just someone who was born in Bethlehem, God the Son took on flesh in Bethlehem, but he was with God in the beginning. The one who created, the one who recreated in salvation will sustain you. He upholds all things by the word of his power. In other words, God wants us to understand that God the Son was in the work of creation. He was also in the work of recreation and he will be faithful to the work of restoration. He's not going to give up on his plan. He's the creator, the heir, the owner, and the sustainer of all he created. I want you to think. Allow that to sink in to your souls. That he preserves all those he saves. the sun ever ceased to will the universe to remain, it would cease to exist. God upholds Jupiter and Mars by one word of His power. Now, we know that the prophets, and Jesus is greater than the prophets, the prophets did some creative miracles. We think particularly of Elijah as one of those prophets. We called down fire to consume the sacrifice in 1 Kings 19. And we think of the widow's jar of oil that never ran out. These amazing creative miracles. But Jesus, greater than the prophets, his life was just marked by these creative miracles. Jesus' first miracle, turning water into wine. We often think of Jesus in terms of healing miracles. But his creative miracles are stunning, aren't they? The feeding of the 5,000, then the feeding of the 4,000, the catch of 153 fish. And I love that particularly because that shows Jesus as both creative but also sustainer. Because remember, this is John 21, after Peter has denied him. And Peter's just gone fishing, he's given up. And Jesus does this creative miracle, 153 fish. Don't you love that the resurrected Christ would take time to give a fish barbecue to his disciples, most of whom deserted him? What grace. What kindness. And there, the one who creates all these fish, brings them to the side of the boat, then restores and reinstates Peter. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. you. Feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Three times he restores him. And then he says an amazing thing. He says, Peter, Satan has asked if he may sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail you. There we see Jesus, the sustainer of Peter. I think we have to have an understanding of Jesus as the sustainer of our lives and faith. 
that has a category for us sometimes falling and stumbling. Certainly, the Apostle Peter fell and stumbled. He denied Jesus. But that wasn't the end of the story. I mean, Jesus even saw into the future that Peter would deny him. And here he is reinstating him, forgiving him, and saying, and when you come back, you're going to strengthen your brothers. He's already seeing Peter, this great shepherd, even though Peter is just seeing himself as the denier. I want to encourage you with this. Jesus, who is creative, is also the sustainer and restorer. How many of us have felt like our faith has been feeble these last two years? We've been in the crucible. We've doubted. Many of us have thrown hissy fits because life just is not the way we thought it would turn out. Jesus is not surprised. He is sustaining us. As Jude 20 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Doesn't mean we don't stumble. But what it does mean is that Jesus' sustaining grip on our lives is more decisive than our faith grip on Him. I think so often when we have a small view of Jesus, we think our grip on Him is decisive. I mean, it counts for something. But ultimately, the one who created and the one who recreated at salvation is the one who upholds us and sustains us by one word of his power. There are times when our grip is loose and his is still tight. Let's be encouraged by that. I love Tim Keller on this, where he talks about faith and doubt. And I know in this last two years, I'm I'm a pastor, I'm a preacher, I'm a planner of churches. I'm supposed to have been strong in faith the whole time. And there have been times when I've been feeble in faith. But he asked the question, are we 100% saved if we are not 100% faithful? He asked that question. And he gives the analogy of a man who falls off a cliff. And in his desperation, he's looking for something to hold him, looking for something to save him, to, to sustain him. And as he's falling in a split second, he sees this flimsy-looking branch. In a split second, he's not sure whether that branch will save him, will sustain him, will hold him. He's probably about 60% sure. And there's 60% certainty he reaches out and he grabs it. And he goes, boing, 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 and it kind of holds him. He was like, oh my gosh, it held me. And he asked the question, was that man 100% saved? He was only 60% sure. And of course, the answer is yes. He was 60% sure, but 100% saved. In other words, God can work with feeble faith. It must be willing faith. It must be soft-hearted faith. But what is ultimately decisive, it's God's faithfulness, not our faith. Salvation is based on God's faithfulness, not ultimately our faith. Isn't that good news? It's good news. Finally, He is the purifying sacrifice for our sin. After making purification for sins, 
he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I so want to go on to verse 4, but I'm going to stop there. Mid-sentence. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There is a sudden transition in this opening stanza. And it uses the word purification. Purification. And it's, it's not one we normally use associated with the gospel, is it? We often use words like justification or redemption or sanctification. But the writer of the Hebrews is introducing us to this priestly temple analogy. He's going to use it a lot because he's talking to a Hebrew audience. And I just want to encourage us because most of us, I think, are Gentiles. I'm, I'm about 126th Jewish and proud of it. But I'm a Gentile. And, and Hebrews actually gives us cause to dig into some of the treasure and the richness of temple and sacrifice and priestly imagery because Jesus was Jewish. And the more we understand that, the richer our understanding of salvation is. And so a little bit of background about purification, that, that priests in Jerusalem would purify themselves before making atonement. So this was uh, Mosaic law, not just moral law, but temple law. And, and, and they would often do it with either a spotless lamb or a goat, called the, the, the scapegoat, depending on the wealth of the individual, they would bring sacrifices too. And so if you were poor, just two turtle doves were given. That's how we know that Jesus was born poor, because only two turtle doves were given at his presentation. But this priest would do this cleansing rites on the Day of Atonement. And the priest would use a spotless lamb. And what it was saying is that Jesus, the great high priest, did not need any sacrifice to be made for himself. He was already the spotless lamb. He was pure, without blemish. In other words, his death was not the death of the guilty. It was the death of substitution. That Jesus lived the life that none of us could live and died the death that none of us could die because it was the death of the innocent in our place as a substitute. And so his purification was not for himself. The high priests made purification for themselves. His purification was for us. He took on himself our stains. And I want us just to, to land in the beauty of this. Because very often when we talk about the gospel, we, we talk about forgiveness of sins. Confess your sins one to another and you'll be forgiven. And that's beautiful. That is the gospel. But... The writer of the Hebrews just goes a little bit deeper and he talks about purification. And purification is more than just legal declaring of us righteous. Purification is actually about cleansing of the stains of the conscience. That Jesus enters into the mess of our lives and cleanses the stains of of our conscience. As Isaiah 1 verse 18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. 
That's more than just legal forgiveness. That's a cleansing of the heart. It's a cleansing of the mind. It's cleansing of memories. It's cleansing of the stain of sin. It's called the gospel of expiation. That God does not only forgive our sins through Jesus, He cleanses us of the stains of sin that we have committed and sins committed against us. Let's just get real honest as we land. Don't you sometimes feel horrified at the impure thoughts that pop into your head? You go, where, where did that come from? Don't you sometimes feel mystified at the impure motives that creep into your heart? Lord, I'm, I'm trying to be pure, but actually I've got this angle. I'm working this angle. There's only one who always had pure thoughts and pure motives. That was Jesus. And he knows that sin is not only the sins that we commit externally, but they are sins of thought and heart and motive that he wants to purify us of. And I love this. Come let us reason together. Though your sins be like scarlet, they will be whiter than wool. Isn't it amazing that God finds it reasonable that he can change the very constitution of a heart? We think that can't happen. God says, it's reasonable to me. In my son's substitutionary death, I paid not just to declare you righteous, I actually paid to cleanse you from the stains of sin. Some of you have had awful sins committed against you. And you sit with the stains of that sin committed against you. And here on offer is actually a cleansing of the conscience, a breaking of a chain and a pattern of sin in Jesus, the purifier. He can purify a stained conscience. He can purify a depraved mind. He can purify an abused life filled with traumatic memories. This is Jesus. That means you and I are not prisoners to our messy past because Jesus entered into the mess of our past. Praise God. And I think so often when we don't understand purification, we might live with a sense that our sins are forgiven, but we still live with a sense of shame. And shame is more than, I've done this. Shame goes on to, this is just who I am. This is just who I am. So of course God can forgive me, but I've got no power to stop doing this or thinking this because this is just who I am. And Satan loves shame. But actually God has made provision for shame. A purification of our conscience. I am a very messy eater. And one of the things my wife often does before we go out is that she helps me clean food out of my beard and food off my shirt. She's like, it's fine at home, but you can't go out like that. And the stains of shame often actually keep us from community. We don't want to go out like that. 
And one of the beautiful aspects of Jesus' purification is as He cleanses us from stains, we are able to come back into community and enjoy the gift of brothers and sisters. Early church father John Chrysostom said this, Be ashamed when you sin. Don't be ashamed when you repent. Sin is the wound. Repentance is the medicine. Sin is followed by shame, but repentance is followed by boldness. Satan has overturned this order and given boldness to sin and shame to repentance. Jesus wants to replace shame with boldness to repent. Boldness to repent. So dear brothers and sisters, Jesus is better. He's better than the prophets. He's made a promise that he can fulfill. Jesus will never overpromise and underdeliver. The prophets promise, but they couldn't absolutely fulfill. Jesus fulfilled what they promised. He is both glorious and approachable. He is both the creator and the sustainer of all he created. And the one who purifies us now lives to intercede for us. What a savior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you are the radiance of God's glory. I thank you that we who have run to repent, who have run to the cross, we can look on the face of God and live. Lord Jesus, I, I thank you that you are able to sustain all that you created. Thank you that with one word of your power, you are able to lift up those who are downcast. I thank you that you, Jesus, are doing that even now. Thank you that Hebrews tells us that you intercede for those who are yours. Thank you that you are cheering us on to cross the finish line of faith. And I pray for perseverance in each one of us, in Jesus' name. I thank you, Jesus, that you are the purifier of our consciences, purifier of our motives. We, we bring our lives before you, and we ask that you would cleanse us from shame. Lord, we so want to treasure you rather than use you. And we ask that your spirit, as he breathed the word of God, would open up the word in our lives, that we would trust you and treasure you more. In Jesus' name, amen.